Good morning, Boker Tov. Good morning, good morning. I want to thank our sponsors of the Amuna series for the year, Dr. Zavi and Bella Morgan, who sponsored Lilo Nishmas, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Brian Gabbett, Baruch Tzim and Ruvein Nassan, who was an example to all of us of living a life filled with Amuna in the good times and even in the bad times. The Amuna class is also sponsored by Sarah Bas Rivka and Chan Shalamas Bas Leah to merit them both to find the proper marriage partners, Be'ezrus Hashem. That's what it says here. So, Mirza Hashem, we should hear good news, Besodos Tovos, and uh, we should all get invited to their wedding. And dance. Okay, we uh, started a new limud the last time we left off. We've had a two-week break. Do Baruch Hashem to travel and simchas. But we are back, better than ever. So we started the last time a new limud from the author of the Sefer Bilvavi Mishkan Evne, who's written many, 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 many volumes. And though he is now uh, revealed, he began to write it anonymously, He's revealed and in fact spoke at our shul at one point several years ago. He still prefers to remain anonymous. And we've been learning a uh, insight of his called Da Es Bizchonech. Know your bitachon. Know yourself. It's all part of a series he has about knowing ourselves. We're living in a time so fast-paced, so filled with noise, so filled with responsibilities and chaos that we don't pause to ever know ourselves. You can only know yourself if you have a conversation with yourself. Now, you can have a conversation with yourself that lands you in the insane asylum, right? If you're having a conversation with yourself out loud, then, you know, you can land in the insane asylum. Uh, or you can have a conversation with yourself, which is your ability to listen to your own inner voice, the ability to regulate yourself, the ability to measure yourself, the ability to know yourself, and to be able to interact with the world in a way in which you are controlling yourself. I love to always invoke the two metaphors, or the contrasting metaphors, of the thermostat and the thermometer. A, thermome- a thermometer tells you the temperature. A thermostat enables you to control the temperature. So most of us live our lives as a thermometer. I can tell you, I'm really angry, I'm really frustrated, I'm really tired, I'm really this, I'm really that. We're a thermometer, we're measuring our own temperature, and many like to share constantly exactly what the thermometer is measuring. They like to talk about how tired they are, how angry they are, how frustrated they are, how jealous they are, how happy they are, how at peace they are. The whole world needs to know and be reminded over and over again, online, offline, in every which way, exactly how they feel. Those are the thermometer type of people who constantly are aware of how they feel and need the world to know. Much more impressive and what we all should strive and aspire to be is not a thermometer, but a thermostat. Thermostat is the ability to control the temperature. Oh, I'm feeling tired, I need more rest. I'm angry, I need to calm down. I'm feeling envious, I need to be happy with what I have. The person who's a thermostat doesn't tell the whole world, well, I feel this way, but you should know that I'm working on feeling that way. They don't post that online, they don't talk about it online or offline, but those are the great people that we know. Those are the great people we aspire to be. Not the, people should be embarrassed to be a thermometer. Forget posting or sharing or talking about it, you should be embarrassed that all you can do is report on how you feel. We should be a a thermostat and be able to regulate and modify how we feel, which is exactly, so in that context, the author is telling us that one of the ways that we have a self-awareness and one of the ways that we can have that conversation with ourselves and one of the ways to regulate how we react and how we respond and how we feel and what we do next is to know our bitachon, is to know our relationship with Hashem. It's such an important mimer. I love this piece that we're going to study that we've already begun to study together. So he says the following. We're on the, on the second page. I don't know where we are, but I know where we're starting because I don't remember exactly where we were. On the second page, 
If you remember, he began by invoking the story of Shimon and Levi. Shimon and Levi have a sister, Dina. She is violated by Shechem. Reuben, uh, Shimon and Levi concoct an entire uh, strategy about how to hold the people, Chamor, Shechem, how to hold their entire people accountable. Everyone has to give themselves a bris so that we can marry one another. On the third day, when they were the most vulnerable, that's when they attacked and that's when they destroyed them. And when they came to the city, when they were confident in their plan, when they knew what they were going to do, the Pasuk describes Bo el Ir Betach. They came to the city with a feeling of Betach. And if you remember, we described what does it mean to come with a How do you translate that word Betach? So, right, Bitachon in Israel is security. Bitachon here is trust and faith in Hashem. But Betach also means with confidence, with a sense of confidence. You ever walk into a situation, not overconfidence, overconfidence can be a very dangerous, dangerous thing. Overconfidence is responsible for a lot of disasters that could have been avoided in interpersonal relationships and in other areas of life. Not a sense of overconfidence, but it means, yeah, I prepared and I'm ready and I'm confident it's gonna go well. Betach, they had done their preparation, namely, they got an entire population of males to circumcise themselves and it was the third day after surgery and they were the most vulnerable. So yeah, you've pretty much stacked the odds in your favor. You look like the underdog, the weak, meek, pale Jewish B'nai Torah coming in to fight the mighty people of Shechem. You look like the underdog. Malcolm Gladwell's uh, great book where he talks about David and Goliath, who's the underdog and who's not. You look like the underdog, but you really stack the deck that you're coming in. And not is it that B'nai Yaakov, it's not that, Ruvain, that Shimon and Levi rather had no chance. It's that the people of Shechem had no chance. They were on the third day, they're recovering from surgery. They couldn't even move. So how did they come into that situation? They walked into that fight. They walked into that battle with an attitude, with a sense of betach, with a sense of confidence, of surety. They, were, they knew they were going to win. And that's the root of bitachon, what he's going to develop. When do you walk into a situation with a sense of confidence? When are you sure? When you know that there's nothing that can stand in your way. There's nothing that can take you down. There's nothing that will be an obstacle or block you and block your path from what you're set to achieve. You've done the hard work. You've done the planning. You're ready to go. And there's nothing that can stop you. So when you've done the hard work and when you know the circumstances are lined up in such a way that you are poised to succeed, you're confident and you're sure with your success, with your triumph, So says the author of the Bavavi, it's an incredible idea. From the use of this word betach, early on in the Torah, we can extract and we can extrapolate what betachon is in general. You know what betachon is? The same way that Shimon and Levi walked into Shechem with a sense of confidence and a sense of surety and a sense of absolute knowledge they were going to succeed in triumph. That's bitachon. We have that ability to walk through our lives with a sense of confidence and surety that everything is going to be right, that it's all going to be okay, that everything's going to happen the way it's meant to be, that nothing can stand in our way, that everything is lined up to go exactly as it is supposed to. We do it not for the same reason. Shimon and Levi did it because they had, they had concocted this scheme. They knew that the odds were in their favor. They knew they couldn't lose. So when you know you can't lose, you can walk with a sense of confidence. We walk with a sense that we can't lose, but for a very different reason. We walk with a sense that we can't lose because we know HaKadosh Baruch is on our side. 
He knows us and He loves us and He has our back. He's infallible and His providence will protect us. And that doesn't mean that we are all not susceptible or vulnerable to illness or financial collapse or relationship stress. We are vulnerable to all and any of those things and many too many in this room and beyond have suffered from them. So walking with a sense of betach or bitachon, that confidence, is not that we won't have to engage those things. It's that even if or when we do, we know that we can succeed and triumph. We know that we will overcome. Overcome doesn't mean that it has a good ending necessarily, but overcome means that it doesn't mold or shape us or bring us down. It doesn't cause us to stop believing that it's part of a master plan, that it's by design, not chance or randomness, that it's there for a reason. That's a sense of bitachon, that sense of confidence and surety that we can walk through life with, that you know the odds are in your favor because Hashem has our back. Last week we were, I was in Israel for a beautiful, beautiful simcha. So on Friday morning I dive in Neitz at the Kotel, which was amazing. You're walking through the old city, it's dark and it's just starting to get light. And I, I posted the pictures, I'm happy to, I'll put them on our Amuna group because they were just amazing. The sky begins to get light and the, and the orange, red, it was beautiful. And at the Kotel there's a gazillion minyanam of every which type and every type of Jew and they're all screaming at the top of their lungs and boom, the Neitz hits, ha Neitz hits, sunrise hits, 624 and 50 something seconds and there's silence. Whole Kotel Plaza, inside, outside, everyone's quiet because it's time to reach the Amida, everyone simultaneously, it's the most powerful and beautiful thing. So we daven there, and right after davening, met a modern day hero, Mati Dan, who was the founder of Atera Kohanim in the old city, and uh, took us, I was with Rabbi Moskowitz, and we went for a tour of the Muslim Quarter, and we went to some really remarkable, extraordinary sites, many we'd been to before, other new places, the Kotal Katan, and many other places. So here we are strolling through the Muslim Quarter, and you're a fool if you think that everyone you walk by is a terrorist who wants to kill you. And you're a fool if you think that nobody you walk by is a terrorist who wants to kill you. So you can't help but walk by everyone and try to picture, you know, what angle they're going to come at and am I ready and, right? So I'm not a afraid person, maybe, maybe to a fault I'm uh, somewhat fearless. So I wasn't afraid to go there to do that. You know, but I asked Matidan, this is an individual who's really legendary, he's a modern day hero. He's personally responsible 41 years for a movement that has brought back Jewish homes that really belong to us in the Muslim quarter and throughout in the Salwan Valley. Do you know that there's a kolel, there's a base medrash now in the Salwan Valley? It's like, you know where the siren comes from and the Arab neighborhood down in the valley when you're looking at the Kotel? So, and, and there's five Bate medrash now in the Muslim quarter and they're all just and legal and returning homes to the right place and the things that we saw and the way that he talks with his amuna. And so he's walking around and I'm not confident that he's packing heat, although I wish he were for our little walk together. And um, I said to him, you know, are, are you nervous? Not just being here in the Muslim quarter, but given who he is and his very public profile and the difference that he's made, like, are, are you nervous? And you know, Bo el betach. He walks through that Muslim quarter, betach. Why would, why would I be nervous? I'm doing the will of Hashem. We're hastening the redemption. We're returning Jews to Yerushalayim. We're rebuilding Bonei Yerushalayim. This is exactly who we are, what we're meant to be. It's what we daven for. We're watching it happen and unfold before our very eyes. He has a sense of betach. A sense of betach. There's a sense of calm and a sense of peace and a sense of tranquility that even though he's in such a hostile, very tense region of the world, maybe the most, and even though in theory, and I don't mean to scare him, I, I'm pretty confident his wife is not listening to this, he's got a target on his chest, but there's a sense of betach. If you believe in Hashem and you believe you're doing His will and you're serving His, his mission, then you have a calm. You have a calm. No matter what's happening around you, 
no matter the chaos, the tension, the hostility, no matter what's happening around you, no matter what you face and what you have to overcome, but if you really believe that, you have a sense of surety, a sense of calmness, a sense of confidence, and you have an inner calm that you're able to walk with. It was really extraordinary, really extraordinary to be in his presence and to be able to try to have that calmness be contagious. We all know people like that, right? Where our lives, our lives, some of us, some of us wish, our lives are, are smooth sailing, right? Relatively speaking, health, financial, relation, pretty smooth sailing, but the smallest thing, uh, we're so frazzled and life is upside down and I can't believe it and how am I gonna get through it and what's going to be? And then there are people who are facing the most they're facing the greatest, most consequential things in the world. And they have an inner calm when you're with them. And you say, how are you so calm? How are you confronting this with such a sense of peacefulness? And they'll tell you because there's a bigger plan. So whatever treatment, whatever therapy, whatever I have to face, whatever I'm trying to figure out, whatever hole I'm trying to come out of, I have to do what I have to do. I have a plan, I have a strategy, I gotta do what I've gotta do. But once I'm committed to do what I have to do, there's a betach, there's a confidence, there's a surety, there's a calmness, because Hesh Baruch Hu has our back. So he says, this is the root of the word bitachon, what it means to live with bitachon. So if you want to know whether someone has bitachon, check how calm they are. Check how calm they are. The person who's so frazzled, the person who loses their cool so easily, the person who's so bent out of shape, the person who's so chaotic, they could talk a big game about Amuna bitachon. They could subscribe to every email list and WhatsApp alert, listen to every Amuna shir, read every Amuna book, preach every Amuna message, daven the longest Shemona in the planet, say Sefer Tehillim 14 times a day, separate Chala another 30 times a day, and in the end of the day, if they're frazzled and they're upside down and they're bent out of shape, it hasn't penetrated, it hasn't sunk in. If the bitachon sinks in, if it really penetrates into our core, and that's what we're meant to be doing. Now, we're human, we're all human. We're not all matidan. We're not all Shimon al-Navi. We're not all the people, the righteous people who exhibit and live with that incredible, incredible emuna. We should read their books. We should read their story. We should try to spend some time with them because it's contagious. When you read a biography of such a person, <coughs> Rebetzin Machlis, when you read a story, I was just with Rebetzin Machlis, Allah Shalom, one of her sons-in-laws, a good friend of mine. So he was at this wedding and we were catching up and sharing stories about her. Read, read her book. And you can't help but the, the, it's contagious that, that Amuna, you absorb it. So surround yourself with those people and read their stories and the biographies and listen to their lessons. It can't help. But we're all human. So we all do get bent out of shape. That thing happens, that disappointment or that failure or the thing that didn't work out or the news, which is devastating. We are all absolutely human. So you know what we're meant to do? Take a few deep breaths and remember the Amuna Shir. Take a few deep breaths and remember that I am, an, I am a... I am a, a child, a prodigy, a progeny of Shimon and Levi. These are my ancestors. These are my forefathers. I have within me that capacity. I can find that calmness. Maybe I need to take two, a few deep breaths. Kol haneshama tahalaka. Chazal say, don't read a kol haneshama. Every soul praises God. Read a kol haneshima with every breath. Because you know how you restore your neshama? Through deep breathing. You know those people who are not common? They're frazzled and they're chaotic and they're bent out of shape and they're losing their cool. You know what they all have in common? Very shallow breathing. They're out of breath, out of breath, and running into it, out of breath. You know how you restore your neshama? The same word, it's not a coincidence. Neshima, neshama. Kol neshama, kol neshima, talaka. Take some deep breaths and say, you know, I have to be calm. Because whatever's meant to be is what's going to be meant to be right now. This is the way it's meant to be. Even silly stuff. 
I gave a talk last night as part of the American Orthodox series. And right before the talk, I said to myself, oh, I can't believe I forgot to mention the class at the Parsha class this morning. If I would have promoted it, if I would have shared it, there'd be so many more people here. And I started to get so upset at myself. And then you take a deep breath and you realize, well, what's the point? I can't go back in time. I can't undo it. And even though it was my own mistake that I forgot to announce it, it was what was meant to be. It was what was meant to be that I forgot to announce it. Baruch Hashem was a beautiful turnout. Baruch Hashem was a great class. My point is that in those moments, and they happen every single day, something happens, either external, that the world is throwing at us, or internal, something I say, oh, I wish I did that differently. I should have said that. I should have gone there. I should have taken care of it this way. I should have done it differently. You can get frazzled, and then you get out of breath, and then you get bent out of shape. Or you could take that deep breath, and you can have that calm. You could have that bow el ir betach, we walk into the city, the ear of our life. We walk into every area of life and you say, no matter what's happening around me, on the inside, I can have this inner ability to be incredibly calm. Nefesh Adam, second paragraph. We started this last time. The soul of a person, the life of a person is made up of two components. There is the external, there's the outer world that we're living in, and there is the internal, there's our inner world, the voice in our own head, our own soul. On the external side, it's a very fragmented, divided, stress-filled, tension, broken world. If you look at a person on the outside, there's the outer world that we're living. We're scrambling, we're going, we're doing, we're struggling, we're overcoming. That's our outer world. That's our outer world. That's how we look. That's how we look. I'm fighting my temptation to eat the wrong foods. I'm fighting to exercise. I'm fighting to take care of myself. I'm fighting to do what I have to do. I'm fighting in a global sense. There are, there are global tensions and wars and there's the external life that I'm leading. And the external life that I'm leading is how everyone would measure me from outside. Right? If there were a camera on me, if my life were a reality show, what would it show about my life? Scrambling, running, doing, struggling, overcoming. That's the external life that I'm living. That's the reality show of my life. But however, there's an inner world. No matter what it looks like on the outside, no matter how much scrambling I'm doing, how much activity there is on the outside, in my inner world, there's the ability to have a sense of unity, to be unified, and to be pure, and to be whole, and to be clear. My inner world. In other words, on the outer world, you can be entirely, entirely <coughs> upside down, while the inner world is a place of calm and a place of peace. So listen to what he says. If you were to look at our outer world, show me one area of life where I don't face opposition. One area of my life where I don't have to overcome an obstacle, attention. One area of my life, it doesn't exist. My eating, I have temptations I have to overcome. My sleeping, I have struggles. Speaking, I struggle to say the right thing. Relationships, they take work and effort. Work and income, I have to work hard. There are forces against me. Every area of life, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional health, your speech, your thought, your action, every area of your external life, we confront obstacles, we confront tensions, we have to overcome. Hopefully we do. That's the definition of a successful life. Hopefully we do. 
but nobody has it easy. I've yet to meet anyone who wakes up in the morning, it's all easy. They only want to eat the right things and say the right things and go to the right places. They feel fantastic. They slept enough, they eat well, the money's pouring in, life is great, the relationships flow seamlessly. I have yet to meet the person. If you're that person, I don't believe you. It doesn't exist if you're alive. If you're alive, it doesn't exist. It simply doesn't exist if you're alive. You're not human, you're a robot. If you're a human being who's alive, that does not exist, that scenario. Every single one of us, if you're awake and if you're alive, in so many areas of our life, we're facing tension and obstacles and we have to be able to fight to overcome them. The world we live in is a world of free will and choice. The world is filled with battles and wars. There's a battle with Syria, and there's the battle with the balloons coming from Gaza, and there's the battle, battle with Iran, and there's the battle between me and the Ragulach. <laughs> there's battles. I'm not sure which is the harder battle to fight. The last one. Marzipan Ragulach. It's mamish like you have no chance. There's no chance. There's simply no fighting chance. I actually concede the war before I go to Israel. On the plane, I announced to Marzipan, to the Ragulach, you won. I lie down, I wave the white flag, I'm going to spend a week eating terribly whatever I want. When I come back, I'll start battling again. I'm not suggesting that's the right way to be, but... I mean, as delicious as the cucumbers in Israel are, and they're delicious, the Israeli salad, but... The Ragulach... It's not a fight. It's not a fair fight. It's not a fair fight. So, so I, I'm half joking, but I'm really very much serious. Because you know what? As much as the battle with Iran and as much as the battle with Hezbollah, Hamas, and Syria, and as much as our fight against anti-Semitism, these are real and legitimate and important fights, and we should all be engaged in them. But you know what else is real? And you know what else is real to us? And we wake up and fight every single day? Breakfast. Getting enough sleep. Saying the right things. Doing the right things. Davening with Kavana. Making a bracha out loud. Volunteering for chesed. Being selfless instead of selfish. All of these things. There are battles and there are wars. Our life are defined by them. That's what we wake up and what we do every day. If you're awake, if you're conscious, if you're alive, you are in a moment of test. Because we have free will, and because there's nothing in our life that's not filled with endless choices to make, those choices prevent, present a nisayon. We are tested every day. Every day. Sometimes they're great tests. And sometimes they're small. There are difficult, great, grave, consequential battles. And there are small, insignificant, who really cares things. But all of them, there's an inner conversation. All of them, there's an active choice. All of them, there's a conscience and a conscientiousness. So if I took a snapshot, if a, if, a, if a reality camera followed me around, followed you around, followed anyone around all day, all they would record were choices that had to be made and battles which were fought. That's what our lives would show. I don't care if your day is defined by playing mahjong. You got to decide what hand to play. If you're playing golf, which club are you using next? I, I don't care if you think your life is bliss, you're still making choices. And you got to measure the wind, and you got to look at your Mahjong opponent, and you got to decide your next, what am I making for dinner? And you got to decide, I don't care if it all is honky-dory and bliss. From the moment we wake up until we fall asleep at night, we are making choices. And those choices are battles. 
Should I make the unhealthy dinner or the healthy dinner? Should I waste the time on this? Should I do that? Should I watch this? Should I watch? Should I say this? Should I say that? Should I give more to this or give more to that? Our lives are defined. And the reality show of our lives externally would show that our life is consumed with the choices, the struggles, the tension. And even when it appears to you that you have a moment of quiet and tranquility, that's when you're in the most trouble. Because when it appears that everything is quiet and tranquil, and easy. Yeah. I can tell you, by the way, that in my experience as a rabbi with the people I've counseled and the crises that I've been there to try to help and support people in, they often got into the most trouble with moral choices and acting out when there was the most quiet and they were the most bored. When you're quiet and when you're bored is when the Yitzhahara is fortifying itself and it's about to come on in the strongest way. When you're busy, busy, busy and doing, 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 the Yitzhahara has no room. It can't get a word in edgewise. And when people feel my life is quiet and all is well and in fact I'm bored and now go let me try this and look at that and be tempted by that. People get into a lot of moral trouble, moral choices trouble when they're bored, when there's quiet. So our lives are defined by choices, by struggles, by battles. And even when we feel that we have quiet, that's when the biggest battle is about to confront, about to face us. That's what it's about to present itself to us. So if you were to look at your life in that way, should you wake up with any confidence at all about anything? There's not a day that's gone by in my life. There's not a day that's gone by in my life that I went to sleep at night and said, this, was the, this day went exactly as I wanted it to. I ate the right things, I did my push-up and sit-ups, I protected my tongue, I said the right things, I was efficient and productive at work, I spent the time with my children, I learned the way I wanted to learn. There's not a day in my life as of yet, today could be different, there's not a day in my life as of yet that I've gone to sleep saying, this day was the perfect day. I've had days that were more perfect than others, but there's not a day that I've said, everything about this day was exactly as I drew it up, I was my best self. I acted, I ate, I said, I went, I did, I spent time with exactly the way I wanted to. So externally, you shouldn't be confident in anything. If in 45 years of trying, I haven't gotten one day right, why would I think that tomorrow is going to be it? Should I be confident, let alone overconfident, that tomorrow is going to be the day? Of course not. So if you take an external snapshot of your life, you should not be confident about anything. That anything's going to go right, going to go well, that you're going to get it, that you're going to do it the right way. And why shouldn't you? Because if I know I have an opponent, if I have no opponent in anything, right? So if you're running for Congress and you're running unopposed, an election is tomorrow, should you wake up pretty confident that you're going to win? You should be pretty confident that you're going to win. I, I can't even think of a scenario where you wouldn't win. You're running unopposed. There's not going to be enough write-ins that are going to defeat you. It, there, there simply is not a logical scenario where if you're running unopposed, you're not going to win. But what if you're waking up tomorrow and you've got a strong opponent? They've raised as much or more money than you. They have ads. They have a following. All of the, um, what are they called? The polls, pundits, they're not predicting who's going to win. So when you wake up that next morning, you're not going to wake up so You're going to hope for the best. You did your hard work. And now you're going to see the way it turns out. So our daily lives are like the person who's running against an opponent. I'm waking up tomorrow against an opponent. 
It's called ragalach, potato chips. I'm waking up against an opponent. It's called being tired and lazy, not wanting to exercise. I'm waking up against an opponent that says, just share that juicy gossip. It's lashnar, it's good, it's geschmack. Make someone else's day. Tell it to someone. I'm waking, every day we wake up against opponents. So you'd be a fool to wake up overly, overly confident that you're going to defeat an opponent when you wake up every day facing opposition. There's no sure thing that you're going to persevere and overcome whatever is opposing you. There are no sure things in life. Nothing. The strongest army in the world can be defeated. The person who thought that they trained the team who was supposed to run away with it can lose. The person who secured all the money in all the greatest ways, somehow it can be lost. So what he's established for us is that externally, in terms of the measure of our external lives, there always is an opponent, and therefore one can never be overly confident that they're going to persevere, they're going to triumph. You can never be overconfident you're going to win or you're going to have come. Omnam, however, all that was the bad news. All that was the bad news. That's why it got so quiet and you all look so sad and somber. All that was the bad news. Because right? that, that's a difficult day. We just want, it's not just us. Bikesh Yaakov leshev b'shava. Yaakov Avinu went through a life of struggle, of trials and travails. And Bikesh Yaakov leshev b'shava. Yaakov comes and he says, God, can I just retire? Can I just have one good day? Just no doctor's appointments, no bad news, no struggles. I just want to live with peace and quiet and tranquility and calm. B'kesh Yaakov leshev b'shava. He just wanted calm. You know what happened? What happened was HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave Rigzosha Yosef. That was the day that Yosef was thrown in the pit and the brothers and the whole episode began. God said, oh, you want calm, you want peace. Oh, you want a little quiet in your life? No problem. Here's the biggest trial you're going to face yet. Your missing son. Why? What's so wrong with wanting peace and quiet? And why does Hashem have to respond by saying, not only do you not get peace and quiet, not only can you never retire, but your life is defined by having to overcome that, that struggle. Because that's why we're here, Adam Amal Yulad. The whole reason that we're here, God put our neshama into our body and deposited us into this world that's filled with choices and options and opportunities because that's what molds and shapes who we are. If a person wants quiet, we have quiet for eternity. When our soul is extracted from our body and we go back upstairs, our soul experiences quiet for the rest of eternity. But this world, which is relatively short, even if you live 120 years, even if you live 120 years, this world is very short. Someone in our shul who's in his 80s, his mother just turned 105. So he told me the story that recently she began to feel that it was enough. She was very old. She didn't feel right. She thought it was her time. And she, I don't know, consciously or subconsciously, she stopped eating and her body started shutting down. And medically she started being, you know, transitioned to, to such treatment. And she had a dream. And in her dream, her sibling said to her, it's not your time yet. We're not ready for you. And she woke up and she started eating again and she started reviving her health. And now she's doing great again. She celebrated her 105th birthday. Because she had this dream that her sibling said, not yet, you're not ready. You're not ready, we're not ready for you. Wake up, start eating, it's time to take care of yourself. And that's what she did. And she came back to life. She celebrated her 105th birthday. Kinai Nahara, unbelievable, unbelievable. So I gotta tell you, if you're 105 years old, you've been alive for a very relatively short time. Why? Because our soul exists for eternity. We were born at the moment of the creation of the world. 
So the truth is that we are all 5,780 5, years old, and some of us look pretty good for that age. <laughs> we are all almost 6,000 years old. Our body is only whatever age our birth certificate says, but our soul is almost 6,000 years old. We've been here for a while. Now our soul has been in the body for whatever period of time, but our soul is going to be extracted from our body, hopefully after 120 and beyond, and then it will exist for the rest of eternity, and when it does, without the body, the soul has no choices to make. The soul finally achieves that level of quiet and calm, the peace and tranquility, when it goes back upstairs and reattaches itself to its source, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and lives with peace and quiet and tranquility, and all is good. Where you are, by the way, where your seat is in the stadium upstairs, is determined by the choices you make while your body housed your soul in this world. I just gave a talk about this recently at Yeshiva High School. Not for now, but if you want to have a good seat, everybody's always vying for a good seat. That's why we have to have reserved for the BRS members, the front row, everybody wants a good seat, right? And the Super Bowl, everybody was showing off. Oh, I was in the 50-yard line. I was in the lower level. I had a box. I was in the front. I was in the dais. I was in the nosebleeds. I couldn't get in the parking lot. I couldn't even scalp a ticket. I was watching from a thousand miles away. Right? Everybody wants to be at the center of where the action is, but where your seat is for eternity is determined by the choices we make in this world. That's why death is supposed to inspire life. Yom Kippur was a dress rehearsal for death. All of the mention and contact we have with death is to remember that eternity should inspire us to make the right choices in this world. Make the right choices now because that determines the seat assignment in the next world. And you can't change seats in the next world. There's only one way you can. You can't change seats in the next world based on your own choices. You're not making choices anymore. You're set. You're fixed. The only way that we make, get a better seat assignment, the only way we get to move down in the next world is a return on the investments that we left behind. That's why we say Kaddish and Yizkar and observe a Yeritzite. That's why we do things nishmas to elevate the soul of a loved one. When we leave investments that we made, namely the people that we inspired and touched, and they do things in our merit, we, can, we can't make new investments, but we can continue to draw the return on the investments we had previously made. That's the only way we can move down in the next world. So why am I telling you this? Because you want calm and peace and tranquility, God says that's for eternity. When you come back upstairs and you're with me, when you're now a soul without a body and there's no choices to be made, you'll have peace for the all of eternity. So 120 years relative to eternity is a blink of an eye. Is Gornish does nothing. We're in this world for a very short time and God says, you're here for a short time, get to work. In this world, in that short time that you're here, it's not about peace and tranquility and quiet. Get to work. It's about the choices we make and the battle and the struggle and the overcoming. So Yaakov says, Bikesh Yaakov Leshi Bishava, I just want to, just please, some quiet, peace, tranquility. Give me one day of calm, Hashem says. You'll get it in the next world, not now. Now, get to work. Because the way that you grow, the way you become the best version of yourself, the way you mold and shape this world and repair it in my image is by the work that you do, by the tension that you confront and that you can, and that you have to, and you have to overcome. So an external snapshot of our life is the image of conflict, of battling, of struggle, of perseverance, of overcoming. That's all the external snapshot, and that's pretty depressing. And here's the good news, which we'll start now and pick up again next week. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. We need good news. Everybody needs good news. Here's the good news. Amnam. Right? Externally, there's no moment, there's no opportunity, there's no choice where there's not an opposition that we're facing. 
If you were able to get an inner snapshot of your inner world, of your world, of your soul, the world of your thoughts, the world of your feelings, it would be an entirely different world altogether. Your inner world can be that place that you crave. Calm, peace, tranquility, confidence. Why? Because no matter the list and litany of things I have to do in my external world, I got to take care of this task and I got to go to work and I got to resolve that issue and I got to go through that treatment and I've got to... All that is the outer world. The inner world you can be going through with a sense of calm, confidence, if you live with bitachon and emunah. You see, if you think that there is a Hashem in your life, if you believe that there is a source of it all, if you believe that there is a divine providence, if you believe there is a being who is orchestrated, that nothing is random and chance and coincidence, that it is not happenstance, that there is more to life than just what we see. If we believe that this world is a matrix, it is an illusion, but really underlying the matrix and the illusion is a world of truth that is orchestrated by an eternal God and His providence that He is interacting with us in this world, then there's nothing that should rattle you. There's nothing that should frazzle you. There should be no chaos. There should be no confusion. There should be no lack of calm in life. There should be no lack of calm in life. So we have that ability. It's all a question of which world we're living in. Are we defined by our external world? Are we defined only by our external world? If someone were to look at our external world, it could be upside down, razzled and frazzled. Or are we living our internal world where we regulate? We are the thermostat. We regulate our voice and we regulate our emotions. We regulate our being and we are calm. If you've ever been by a truly great person, there are some truly great people who are very publicly known to be great. And they have a whole chatzar, they have a whole, to be able to get access to them, you need an appointment, you need 17 levels of protectia, you need to make a large donation, you need whatever. And there are truly great people who no one knows about. And they are extraordinarily great people. But if you're around greatness, you know what they have in common is a calm. The world <coughs> is resting on their shoulders. They are deciding and they are consulting and they're offering advice on the most consequential and significant things there are in the whole world. There's a line out the door of people who want their advice and insight and input. And yet, with it all, they're able to have a certain calm. A calm. You know, there's some people who are the opposite. I myself, to divulge personally, struggle with the opposite, which is that no matter what's happening around you, on the outside everything looks calm, but internally you're absorbing all that tension and stress and then you lose your hair and go gray prematurely and have to take a lot of medications, <laughs> have to take a lot of medications every morning. And that's a very unhealthy way to be. What he's describing to us, the Bavavi, is that we need to live our lives the exact opposite. The outside, it's okay to look hazzled and razzled and frazzled and <coughs> running and doing and struggling because that's the external world that we're living in. It's filled with choices and it's filled with obstacles and it's filled with tensions and it's okay to be running and doing. But what we are aspiring to, what we're working towards, is an internal world of calm and peace. To enter the city betach, to enter whatever's going on in our life with that confidence, to be that mati dan, that you can walk through a hostile region of life, you could face opponents and enemies and obstacles and adversaries, be them in the form of people or illness or financial or whatever it is, and nevertheless walk with a sense of betach, that my inner world is defined by calm and peace because Hashem has my back and it's all for a reason and whatever happens is what's meant to be. I still have to take my initiative, I have to make my effort, I have to do everything I can and should do, but I know in the end of the day, it is all what's meant to be. Before we end and pick up with this again, next week I just want to tell you, I always have to tell you one Amuna story. 
I tell you all the time about our Amuna WhatsApp group, our Hashkacha uh, Pratis WhatsApp group. So this was a great one that happened over the last two weeks. Is um, my seven-year-old son left a great voice note on our WhatsApp group. He was supposed to be getting changed for bed, putting on his pajamas, but instead he was wrestling with his sister and playing on this exercise bicycle. We were staying at someone's house when we were at a simcha in New York. And his pants got caught on the exercise bicycle. So he leaves the following hashkacha pratis voice note. I'm tempted to play it for you. He says, it was such hashkacha pratis. I was supposed to be changing and I wasn't. So my pants got caught and they fell off and they started to change me. And therefore it was such hashkacha pratis that the bicycle started changing me, got me undressed, even though I wasn't getting undressed on my own. Why am I telling you that story? Because it's adorable and he's awesome. But I'm also telling you that story as an example. I want you to know it's, it's an example, and we started later in life, at which we had started when our earliest children were young, although thank God they're turning out okay, it seems bli ayinara. But the more you talk about Amuna and Bitachon, a seven-year-old child can go through the experience of an exercise bicycle ripping his pants off and think, that was hashkacha pratis, because I'm supposed to be changing into my pajamas. You understand? Where does a seven-year-old get that mindset? Where would a seven-year-old ever think that for one moment? And the answer is, when we talk about it, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. It has to be on. Ha'amanti ki adaber. The Hasid Rabbis say, Ha'amanti ki adaber. Ha'amanti. Why is there amuna? Ki adaber. Because I talk about it. If you talk about amuna, then you'll see Hashem. You'll feel Hashem. Even when He's helping you get undressed and changing into your pajamas. And everything in life, from a seven-year-old to, to uh, whatever uh, age, if there's an effort to record and to journal and to capture every day the times Hashem is in our life, then we will live life in high-definition color, looking and discovering and seeing Hashem in every aspect and area of our lives. Have a great day.